Turn to Luke chapter 3. If you're visiting, what we do here at Woodland Hills Church is we just believe in passionately worshiping God and then passionately preaching the Word. And we are, in this season of our church, just going through the Bible verse by verse. Uh, we're studying the book of Luke, and we're taking our time, obviously. We've been at it for eight months, and this is all the farther we've got, is Luke chapter 3. <laughs> Nothing fancy here. We just go verse by verse. Uh, we're not into entertainment or wowing crowds or whatever. Uh, and no, never will that be more obvious than this morning. Uh, now, the good news is that we're going to preach on a whole 15 verses. Uh, usually we take 15 weeks on one verse, but this is 15 verses in one week. That's the good news. The bad news is it's probably about the most boring 15 verses you could imagine ever preaching on. Uh, but I will tell you this. There's nothing superfluous in the Word of God, and if you're willing to dig into it, I guarantee you there's something there that is uh, worth paying attention to. So we're going to be studying the genealogy of Jesus. Woohoo! <laughs> All right! And, and uh, you know, this is the kind of thing I normally would just sort of skip over if I was doing themes or whatever, but it's there, and I'm committed to preaching uh, the whole book of Luke. So we're going to look at the genealogies, and I can guarantee you, well, I can't guarantee you, but I'm thinking, I'm hoping that, that you'll find it's not quite as boring as you might think a study on the genealogy would be. In fact, I think it's pretty exciting. Uh, but that's just me. So here's, here's uh, Luke cha uh, chapter 3, verse 23 through 37. And I'm not actually going to read all the names, okay? Let's not get legalistic about this. I'm going to read some of the key names because it would take us half the sermon to get through all the names. And you wouldn't know them anyways. Um, but uh, here we go. For now, oh, th oh by the way, I want to entitle this, for clarity purposes, uh, The 77 Fulfillment Savior. <laughs> all right, there you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you'll see why in a little bit. Oh, yes. Okay. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Now, remember, he's just been baptized. The Holy Spirit came on him. John the Baptist pointed him out. So he's, he's, he's being inaugurated as the long-awaited king. And now he's beginning his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, because he was actually conceived uh, in the Virgin Mary. But, everyone, but legally, he was the son of Joseph. And Joseph was the son of Heli. And then comes 39 names. Then we come up to the son of David. And then comes 12 more names. Then the son of Abraham. Then follows 19 names. Then the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Woohoo! Let's dig into it. Pray with me here. Father, we don't normally get into genealogies very much, but this is an important one. So help us stay awake, be attentive, be disciplined and receive from you what you have for us here. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right. There's four questions I want to ask about this genealogy. There's actually five, but I'm only going to get to four. I'm hoping I can get to four. Uh, the fifth one, I'm going to wait till next week uh, because it transitions into the next chapter. So the, here's four questions. And remember, one of the best ways to get into the Word is to ask questions, even obvious questions. Uh, it, 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 it kind of just pulls you into digging into the text. So here's the four questions. And I'm ranking these uh, in, in order of boringness, all right? The first one's the most boring. Uh, the second one, a little bit less boring. And by the time we get to the end, I think it's pretty exciting. But, you know, so it's, it's, in, it's, it's informative stuff that we need to know, even if it's not going to, like, make you run the aisles. So question number one, why does Luke put Jesus' genealogy here? 
Matthew also has Jesus' genealogy, but he puts it at the start, which is kind of what you might think someone would do. But Luke, all of a sudden, it pops up here. Jesus just got baptized. Spirit came down. And now he's going to go into this, you know, 15 verses and 77 names of genealogies. What, 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 what's with that? Well, the answer to that is this. As we've seen, as we've been looking at this entire narrative, Luke here is, is inaugurating the king. Uh, this is the introduction of the king, uh, high priest, to the world. And as we saw last week, all the things that are supposed to happen to a new king uh, happen to Jesus. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's announced by God, which is the voice from heaven. He's anointed with oil, which is the Holy Spirit coming down. He's confirmed by the prophet, which is John the Baptist. He's, he's going to go out to battle, which is what kings do, uh, in, the next, uh, in, in the next chapter. We'll get to that next week. But one of the things that frequently, in fact, usually happens with new kings in the Old Testament is that once they're inaugurated, you give their pedigree. You give their uh, legal and biological qualification for having this office because it was, uh, in ancient Israel, an inherited role. So it makes sense that now that all the normal things that are supposed to happen to a new king have happened to Jesus, it makes sense in that cultural context to say, now here's Jesus' genealogy. We need to understand that in the ancient world, genealogies were very, very important. And here's why. Unlike us, most of us modern Western people, ancient people in general, and the Jews in particular, they didn't see an individual as sort of standing alone over and against the rest of the world. They rather saw individuals in a larger context. Who you were was inextricably bound up with who you are related to and who you come from. What tribe do you belong to? Who are you in solidarity with? So to flesh out who a person is, you give their genealogy. And individuals are part of a larger whole. And we don't usually think like that. We tend to be hyper-individualistic. In fact, we tend to be dysfunctionally individualistic. Uh, we, you know, James Dunn said that no man is an island, but we tend to think we are islands. We define ourselves pretty much in isolation from everybody else. So we don't pay a whole lot of attention to genealogies. In fact, most of us here probably couldn't name our great-great-grandfather. Uh, I couldn't. We're just not into genealogies, but ancient people really were. Now, it, it, it differs. It, it's, it's a little bit different. There's some exceptions. If you, for example, have someone famous in your genealogy, then your genealogy might be kind of important. We still have a little echo of this tribal identity thing. If your last name is Rockefeller, for example, or if your last name is Kennedy, for example, uh, you might know your genealogy. Uh, you, you know, Paul Eddy, a good friend of mine, he was on the film here. He's our, one of our executive pastors. He's on our board. A real big shot around here. Well, did you know, I've got an inside scoop here, Paul Eddy is the uh, great-great-nephew second removed from Mary Baker Eddy who was the founder of Christian science, which is sort of this aberrant kind of form of Christianity. Which means that our executive pastor, uh, one of our executive pastors, comes from a long line of heretics. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> so, you know, if your last name is famous or infamous, then you might, you might remember it. Um, I, you know, if your last name was Hitler, for example, you'd probably know a little bit about your genealogy. Uh, which... This week, as I was thinking about this, I all of a sudden noticed that I've never met anyone whose last name is Hitler. Uh, hi, my name is Greg Hitler. And I think it's because, I suppose, everybody who had their name Hitler changed it after, you know, Adolf. Uh, you know, it's like, I get rid of that name. 
I, th- I may be wrong about that. But anyways, we, so the, it shows a little bit of an echo, a little memory, a, a, a little piece of this ancient mindset that we are, our identity is somewhat wrapped up with, with who we come from, where we come from. But most of us have pretty boring, you know, our, our ordinary people, us ordinary people, you know, don't pay much attention to that. Someone actually, who apparently had no life, wrote a book on the Boyds. Did a research and traced the Boyd lineage back to the 11th century. And I actually got a copy of this because I met another Boyd uh, who said, Hey, do you know there's a book about us? And gave me this book. And it was profoundly boring. The only thing of note was this, that in the 12th century, we were actually, might I say, nobility in Scotland. (laughs) And uh, we were were the keepers of the palace, which was second down from the feudal lord. And one of my moron ancient relatives kidnapped the feudal lord's daughter, held her for ransom, ended up raping her and killing her. So the feudal lord got all his buddies together and kicked us out of Scotland. And our name was like mud for about 400 years. I always thought I was Irish. Turns out I was, uh, for a short period of time, Scottish. So I'm Scotch-Irish. Anyways, there's my boring history. Let's move on. So we don't see much value in genealogies. That's why we kind of skip over them when we get to them in the Bible. But, but in the ancient world, they were very, very important because who you are is wrapped up in who you belong to, who you're, who you're in solidarity with. They were especially important when it came to validating somebody for an inherited role, like the role of king. Was a, was a role that you had to inherit. So what Luke is doing here is showing that Jesus has the right to inherit this, this role as king because of his lineage. Which brings us to the second question. A little less boring question. Why does Luke's genealogy differ from Matthew's? Have you ever noticed this? In fact, it's troubled some people. The, the genealogies are, are actually significantly different. They both go back to David because they're both trying to show that Jesus is the, is the heir to the Davidic throne. Uh, but Matthew traces it to David through, through his son Solomon, whereas Luke traces it through his son Nathan. And, and the genealogies are actually quite different. Now, how do you explain that? The most common solution, in fact, this isn't like a new thing. We Christians have known about this since the second century. And there's been solutions proposed as to how to reconcile these two accounts. The, the oldest and the most common and the most plausible solution, in fact, I think it's the only plausible solution, is this. Matthew, it's argued, traces the legal line, Jesus' legal association with David, and he does it through Joseph. Because in the ancient world, patriarchal as they were, the legal line always had to come through the male. So the fact that Jesus was the legal son of Joseph, even if he wasn't the biological son, meant that he was legally, it was legally okay for him to inherit the throne of David. Whereas Luke, it is argued, doesn't look at the legal lineage. He's looking at the biological lineage, and he traces it through Mary. Which makes sense because Luke has had, and we'll see later on in the gospel, continues to have a, a real interest in Mary. He, 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 he points out a lot of things about Mary. So it looks here like he's tracing the line through Mary. So, so in Matthew's account, we've got the legal inheritance. In, in Luke's line, we've got the biological inheritance. Now, there's only one problem with that. And that is that it looks like, to modern readers, like Luke also is tracing the genealogy through Joseph. Because he says, Joseph was the son of Heli, who was the son of blah, blah, who was the son of blah, blah. So it looks like he's tracing it through Joseph. 
And he says Joseph was the son of Heli, whereas Matthew says that Joseph was the son of Jacob. And so, of course, you got the Bible critics who are out there going, oh, it's contradiction. See, the Bible can't be God's word. And whenever you hear that, it's always important to calm down and, and, and say, okay, we just got to look at, investigate a little further. Because most of the time, in fact, I think all the time when they say there's a contradiction, it turns out there's a way of reconciling them. You got to ask yourself this question. Given how important genealogies were in the ancient world, I mean, people memorized these things. They knew it, they knew it by rote. Given how important genealogies were, given how important Jesus was to the Christian community, given how close Matthew and Luke are writing to the actual events, how likely is it that they, they didn't know who Joseph's uh, real father was? Uh, you know, it, it's always best to not assume that ancient people are idiots. Uh, they, they weren't dumber than we were, and, and I really think it's highly improbable that they would get such a fundamental thing wrong as who Joseph's real father was and therefore what the real genealogy of Jesus was. There is a very plausible, I think, uh, you know, obvious uh, way of reconciling this problem, and it's this. You'll find in the ancient world that the phrase son of didn't always necessarily mean biological son of. In fact, it was used quite loosely. And in some context, it could mean son-in-law. Son was, you refer to a son-in-law. So when Luke says that Joseph was the son of Heli, he's saying Joseph was the son-in-law of, of, of Heli, and now he's going to then trace the biological line through Mary. So Matthew is showing the legal line, and Joseph, uh, uh, Luke is showing the biological line. Which leads us to question number three, which is, I think... Even a little bit less boring. It's, it's starting to get exciting here. Huh? Huh? Can you feel the energy building? Huh? Okay. okay, is this genealogy meant to be exhaustive? Because see, if this genealogy is exhaustive, if we have here a generation-by-generation account, then that means that Adam was created roughly 6,000 years ago. Is that true? Now, there was a guy named James Usher in the 17th century who used this, this genealogy and modified it with a couple other genealogies in the Old Testament. And on the assumption that all these genealogies were meant to be exhaustive, he determined, combined, by the way, with uh, an assumption that Genesis 1 gives us a literal scientific account of how the world was created, he came to the conclusion that the earth was created on October 23rd, 4004 at 9 in the morning. And it was a widespread theory. In fact, there are still people who hold variations on that theme. Now, is that way of thinking correct? Okay, first, a preliminary word. I know that there are folks in the auditorium, and there'll be folks listening on the radio and folks listening through the Internet, who are young earth creationists. And they're passionate about the, the defense that the earth is, is six to 10,000 years old. That's what young earth creationist means. And they, they have a lot of scientific evidence they believe that, that, that confirms this. And a lot of evidence they believe that shows that, they, that, that those who argue that the earth is four and a half to five billion years are, are completely wrong. And, and they're passionate about this. And as a preliminary word, I want to say this. I got no problems with that. I mean, I don't agree with it, but I don't care. I, I, I want to affirm you in that. And praise God. That, that's wonderful. And so no, my issue is not with the conclusion you come to. My concern on this issue, and this is, I think, a big concern, is this. I worry when people make a conclusion like that, a sort of a dogma, where if you're really going to believe in the Bible, you then you'll agree with them that the earth is six to 10,000 years old. And it sometimes gets translated this way. If you're going to convert to Christianity, part of what you've got to convert to is the conclusion that the earth is six to 10,000 years old. And there's, there's just a whole lot of thinking people in the culture 
regardless of what you think the evidence is, who would find that to be very, very difficult. And now what we've done is placed this this, uh, conclusion about how old the earth is as a precondition for people entering into the kingdom. And i got a problem with that. How much do you want to leverage on this particular conclusion? I mean, 99% of all geologists, paleontologists, biologists, and every other kind of scientificologist uh, thinks that the earth is four and a half to five billion years wrong, about a billion years old. <laughs> if you're a young earth creationist, you think they're five, five billion years wrong. Uh, okay, but, mo- but 99% of them come to that conclusion. Now, they could all be wrong, but my question is this. How much do you want to leverage on all of them being wrong? In fact, not just wrong, but four and a half to five billion years wrong. It may be that they're all wrong, but... I don't think you should bet the farm on that and make it a precondition for someone coming to have faith that the Bible is the Word of God and entering into to kingdom life. There's a lot of issues, legitimate scientific and theological issues surrounding Genesis 1 through 3. How literal is it? How figurative is it? How do you combine that with the scientific enterprise and all these sorts of things? And those are good and wonderful debates. And if you want to know what the right conclusion is, just read my books. I got it out there. But that's not my point right now. The the issue is this. There's something sad, even tragic, when we put hoops for people to jump through to get into the kingdom when the hoops aren't absolutely necessary. Here is what I'd like to call a Woodland Hills. I'd like this to be a Woodland Hills rule of evangelism. Now, I can't get legalistic about this one because we're not legalistic about anything else. But here's how I'd like Woodland Hills people to evangelize when you're sharing Christ with people. Here's the rule. Never place unnecessary obstacles in front of people entering into kingdom life. Never, ever, ever, ever put unnecessary obstacles in front of people entering into kingdom life. One of the reasons why Jesus was royally ticked off at the Pharisees is because they did just that. Oh, if you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to jump through these hoops. Hoops, 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 hoops. And Jesus said, you keep people out of the kingdom doing that. Don't put unnecessary obstacles in front of people. You get in a lot of Christian circles this sort of mindset whether it's explicitly spoken or just sort of presupposed, you get this idea that if you're going to become a Christian, well, then you've got to agree with us, of course, that, that the evolution is completely wrong and that the earth is only 10,000 years old. And if you're going to be a Christian, then you've got to agree with us on eschatology, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever trib. And if you're going to be a Christian and join the kingdom, you've got to agree with us on predestination or agree with us on foreknowledge or agree with us on our interpretation of biblical inerrancy. Or even worse, you've got to agree with us on political stances and nationalistic stances. Or even worse, you've got to agree with us on if you happen to have uh, sins that aren't sanctioned uh, by you know, the kind of ones we wink at in the Christian community, well, then you've got to clean up your act before you become one of us. And we have hoops upon hoops upon hoops that people have got to jump through in order to join the kingdom. And what's tragic is this. The kingdom ain't about agreeing with you on how old the earth is. And it's not about agreeing with you on foreknowledge or predestination or baptism or politics. And it's certainly not about getting your act cleaned up before you join the club. The kingdom of God is about, at the core of it, it's about this. Knowing Jesus Christ, being known by Jesus Christ, and being transformed by Jesus Christ. And the only precondition for that to happen is this. Do you believe in him and will you surrender your life to him? Period. Don't ever make politics or or minutia in theology a prerequisite for someone coming to that. If they want to talk about it, talk about it, but do it in a, in, in a loose, informal sort of a way. I've met people who don't believe in Christ because of, they think that what Christians are saying is that you have to think that the earth is a certain age. How sad. 
Think about Jesus on the cross, and here's the thief, and he says, Lord, can I be with you in paradise? And can you imagine Jesus saying, well, how old do you think the earth is? <laughs> Compared. Amen. Compared to life in Jesus Christ, there ain't nothing important. So just sweep it aside and keep to the issue and invite people to join. Now, let's get back to the issue I was preaching on. Why do you guys always get me off track? <laughs> the issue is this. Well, the, can you infer how old the earth is based on this genealogy? And the answer is no. Now, I don't, again, care how old you think the earth is, but how, however you got to that conclusion, you can't use genealogies to do it. And here's why. The phrase son of, as I already said, uh, doesn't necessarily mean direct biological descendant of. It can mean simply some descendant of. And the phrase father of could simply mean ancestor of. Sometimes removed by a number of generations. For example, look at this interesting phrase in Matthew chapter 1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you're treating genealogies as exhaustive, well, then that means Abraham lived about 70 years before Jesus, and David must have been conquering, you know, expanding the Davidic kingdom about 35 years before Jesus, because that's about how long they counted generations. And you got a screwed up chronology. But see, clearly when, when Matthew says, son of David, son of Abraham, he's dropping out a couple of names, like about a thousand years worth of names between each of those. So it just shows you how cautious we have to be when we're, when we're treating ancient genealogies. Ancient genealogies, we always have to understand the Bible on its own terms, not our terms. We tend to be very detailed, orientated, and, and, and want things to be exhaustive. But ancient genealogies weren't intended to give exhaustive information. They were intended to give relevant information. And ancient people had no trouble whatsoever dropping out names and modifying things uh, if, 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 if it wasn't relevant to the point that they had in giving the genealogy in the first place. Matthew later on gives a longer genealogy, a more full genealogy. And he does it by having three groups of 14 names. And most scholars argue that he does that because, remember, you're in a, in a, in a culture where uh, people, most people can't read or write, and so they pass on oral traditions, so they memorize information. And it's easier to memorize three groups of 14 names than if you don't have any kind of uh, structure to it. Now, to get three groups of 14 names, Matthew drops out a couple names. He just skips a couple generations because they're not important to him. But that just shows you how careful you have to be on inferring, on, on moving from a chronology to, uh, you know, the age of, of the earth or anything of the sort. Luke has a different way of structuring the names. Luke has seven groups of 11 names. Or one scholar I read really goes out of his way to say, no, it's 11 groups of seven names. Whatever. Um, but see, he packages them in, in that way. And the reason he does it, most scholars argue, is because there's something, a symbolic point he's making. And here we come to the title of this message. Um, seven is the biblical number for completion or perfection. And so the 77 names that Luke includes from Adam to Jesus uh, are there not because Luke's intent on giving an absolutely exhaustive list, list of names, but he's saying that Jesus is the double perfection completion of what these genealogies are about. Um, remember, who you are in the ancient world is inextricably wrapped up with your tribe, 
who you're in solidarity with. That's what genealogies are, are to communicate. According to Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah had to belong to the Jewish tribe. So both Matthew and Luke uh, go back to Abraham. And according to Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah has to be a Davidic king. So both Luke and Matthew go back to David. But Luke doesn't stop with David and Luke doesn't stop with Abraham. Starting in verse 34, he goes farther. Abraham was the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag. Skip a bunch of names. He was the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch. Skip some more names. The son of Seth, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. He goes all the way back to there. Which, by the way, this is my fourth question, and that is, why does Luke go all the way back to Adam? Which is the most interesting question, which is I forgot to even announce it was a question. So why does Luke go back to Adam? Now we're finding out. It's about... The 77 perfection of this Messiah. And what Luke is saying here is this. Jesus is not, to understand who Jesus is, uh, it's not just that he's in solidarity with Abraham, though he is. He's not just in solidarity with the Jews, though he is. He's not just in solidarity with the tribe of, 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 of David, though he is. But to understand who Jesus is, you've got to go all the way back to Adam. Because who Jesus is is wrapped up in Adam and in all who descended from Adam. Who Jesus is is wrapped up in the Abrahamic line and the Davidic line and the whole Jewish tribe. But even more profoundly, who Jesus is is wrapped up in all of humanity. That's why Luke goes back to Adam. Luke is saying that Jesus isn't just the 77 perfect double fulfillment of Abraham and David, but Luke is saying that Jesus is the 77 perfect fulfillment of Every descendant of humanity. He's the hope and fulfillment of all of history. He's the hope and fulfillment of the entire world. He's the hope and fulfillment of the entire cosmos. It's all found in the person of Jesus Christ. Which means this. And now this genealogy is not quite so boring. If you're a human being, and I'm thinking you probably are if you're here and understanding what I'm saying. If you're a human being, it means who Jesus is is wrapped up in you. Because you are a descendant of Adam. Jesus is the 77 perfect fulfillment of all of your hopes and desires. And who he is is wrapped up in you, and who you are is inextricably wrapped up in him. You maybe don't know that yet, and maybe you don't accept that yet, but the reality is that you are, whether you know it or not, a descendant of Adam. So Jesus is wrapped up with you, and you are wrapped up with Jesus. Everything Jesus is and everything Jesus does is about you. His life was for you. His incarnation was about you. His, his ministry was about you. His death on the cross was about you. His resurrection is about you. Who he is to the core of his being is wrapped up in you, and who you are is wrapped up in him. He's the fulfillment of everything that you are about. Luke is showing us that this king can't be tribally defined by, on the basis of a particular tribe, not even the Jewish tribe. And Luke is saying that this kingdom revolution cannot be tribally defined. This kingdom revolution that Jesus came to bring, it's not an Abraham thing, and it's not a David thing, and it's not a Jewish thing. It's a, it's a human thing. It's a humanity thing. It's an Adam thing. It's an all-people thing. Jesus is the 77 fulfillment of the whole human race. And that's why you have, throughout the Bible, this, this magnificent, gorgeous, beautiful call over and over again on every page about the universality of who Jesus is. Against what the tendency of all cultures and all religions to define themselves tribally, 
what Jesus is about transcends all tribes, all of our particular ways of identifying ourselves, defining ourselves over and against other tribes. Jesus bashes it all. There's this universality that comes out. And so we read in, in Revelation chapter 5, it says, With your blood, talking about the Lamb, you purchase for God members of every tribe. Say every. every. Oh, every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. He, 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 his, his life and his death and his very being is about all people on the earth. In Revelation chapter 7, it says, Therefore before me, John is saying, was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation. Everyone say every. every. Say every nation. Every, every tribe. tribe. Say it like you mean it. Every people. Every, every language. Every. They're all standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes. Why? Because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they're holding palm branches in their hands. Why? Because palm branches represent peace. And they're saying, we finally made peace with one another. The walls have come down. The wars have ceased. The hatred, the paranoia, the racism has stopped. And now being washed by the blood of the Lamb and standing before the Lord, we've been reconciled, praise God, to our Lord and Savior. And therefore, we've been reconciled with one another. This is not, not a peripheral, incidental thing in the gospel. This is the core of who Jesus is. That's why it's about his genealogy. He's the 77 fulfillment of the whole human race. And you find this throughout the New Testament. Look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, that's all of us in Adam, so in Christ will all be made alive. The scope of who Jesus is concerned about is identical with the scope of who Adam is all about, which means that if you have uh, human DNA, you're encompassed in the saving work of Christ. You're, you're brought into this new humanity. You want to know why we at Woodland Hills uh, stress reconciliation so much? Because I know there's some people who say, gosh, you bring it up too much, you know, it's all you ever preach about, which isn't true at all, but... But, but if, they're, if, you're used to, if you're used to going to most places where they never preach on it, then if you hear two sermons in a row on it, you think, oh, that's all you ever preach about. Uh, but, but it is important to us. It's a front burner issue. And the reason is this. If Jesus is, in fact, the 77 fulfillment, the double perfect fulfillment, the completion of all of humanity, if who Jesus is is wrapped up in the tribe of all human beings, then who we are as the body of Christ has got to be inextricably, inseparably wrapped up with the whole human race and all human beings because we're called the body of Christ. To be a follower of Jesus means who he is is wrapped up with who you are and what his concerns are are your concerns and, and what his heart is for is your heart. And if Jesus' identification, his identity and solidarity is with all people, our identity and solidarity has got to be with all people, which means this manifesting the diversity of the human race in a reconciled togetherness is, is more kingdom than is homogeneity. It, it, it captures an essential aspect of who Jesus is more than homogeneity. The only way we can manifest the allness of who Jesus is, the 77 nature of who Jesus is, the universality of who Jesus is, the son of Adam aspect of who Jesus is. The only way we can manifest that is by encompassing in our midst and having a mindset and an outlook that encompasses diversity, all aspects of diversity, and, and brings different cultures and different ways of worship and different ways of thinking together. This is at the core of who Jesus is, and therefore it's got to be at the core of who we're about. Now it is, I think, 
possibly the most challenging aspect of kingdom work, which is why it's hardly ever done or even talked about. It's hard. It confronts our tribalism, and there's very little that's, that's more central to our fallen nature than our tribalism, our us-versus-them sort of mindset. It's much easier to build a tribal religion. By tribal religion, I mean a religion where it's just it's all based on your culture, it's all based on your language, it's all based on your music, it's all based on your ways of thinking about things. That's easy, which is why that's usually what's done, including in the Christian religion. It's easy, but it's not kingdom. It doesn't capture the allness, the 77 nature, if you will, of, of who Jesus is. It's tribalistic. Now, I understand, if you're in an almost completely homogeneous environment, you're going to have a homogeneous church, and that's just that. If you go to Central Africa, and there's not a European around for a thousand miles, you can't really blame them for not having any Europeans in the church. Got that. And there's language barriers that we have to pay attention to and work around, and those sorts of things. Got that. But insofar as it's possible, it is the mandate to all who name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the mandate to all who are part of the kingdom, insofar as it's possible, to manifest diversity in our coming together and in our working with the larger body of Christ. It is hard, but that's what makes it kingdom. Kingdom is all about bleeding. If you don't have to bleed for it, it's probably not kingdom. Kingdom is all about sacrifice. So when you have to bleed to uh, be stretched outside of your normal tribalistic categories, that's a kingdom thing. That's a Jesus thing. And, and when you have to learn to enter into other ways of thinking that you don't naturally understand, and when you have to learn how to, how to first tolerate and then actually learn how to appreciate other forms of music that really grate on you initially, that's a kingdom thing. That's a Jesus thing. When you go out of your way, because it doesn't happen by accident, not in this fallen tribalistic world, but when you go out of your way to befriend people of other cultures, people who don't look like you, maybe don't normally think like you, who have different life experiences, when you befriend them to the point where you have them over for dinner and, 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 and you talk about issues and, and you collapse the paranoia and the suspicions and the worries that normally are there that keep people barricaded from one another, when you do that, that is such a kingdom thing. That is a Jesus thing that captures something of the allness of Jesus Christ. When, you, when, when you're able to get out of your tribalistic self-preference, our addiction to self-preference, how do I like it? When you're able to get out of that and ask, what is a kingdom way of worshiping? Even if it's not my preference, now you're on your way to manifesting the kingdom. And when, you, when, when diversity stops being a problem and starts being something of beauty, now you're manifesting something of the kingdom. When it stops being the case of, why does that person have to be so loud? Why does that person have to do it that way? Why does this when, it, when, when, you, when, when, when you can collapse that and just begin to lighten the fact that they're getting blessed, and, 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 and you know what? You might even learn something about worshiping, uh, worship by, by looking at them. Why don't you try that? Maybe you're, a little too, you, maybe you're wound up a little too tight. All right? But when, when, when that can stop being a, a, you know, a worry, a suspicion, whatever, and we can start embracing it. See, now we're on the way to the kingdom. It doesn't come easy. The way we think is so tribalistic in this fallen world. We, it's so self-preferential, but it is kingdom to transcend that. Jesus confronts to the core, our innate tribalism. Our tendency to define ourselves in terms of our heritage, in terms of our nationality, in terms of our culture, in terms of the music we like. We, there's a tribalistic 
tendency to make Jesus the son of whatever I happen to like instead of the son of Adam who encompasses the entire world. Why don't I make Jesus the son of America or the son of my political party or the son of my particular culture? When what, what Luke is telling us is that he's, he's not a son defined on your terms. You're his son defined on his terms, and he is the son of Adam. He's the son of man. He destroys and confronts all of our tribalism and parochialism. Now, it actually goes a little deeper than that, and that leads me to question five, but I'm not going to get there right now. Come back next week to complete this whole thing. Here's the question I want to ask. If we are going to move forward on doing this, on capturing the allness of who Jesus is, and I might say that we're just making baby steps right now. I mean, by, some people think, like, we've gone a long way on this. Uh, we've just begun. But if we're going to move forward, if you're going to move forward on manifesting the 77 perfect fulfillment of Jesus to, uh, about all of humanity, if you're going to transcend your tribalism, we've got to collapse our judgment mechanism about other cultures, our suspicions about other cultures, which then means this. We've got to be healed from any wounds that we have up from other cultures, from other people. It's part of our fallen human tendency to, um, uh, to, to take an incident that happens, a word that is said, something that is done, and our fallen brain universalizes it, and then there's a judgment about what white people do or what black people do or what Hmong people do, and our brain has that. And as long as that is there, coming, that judgment that comes out of wounds, you're never going to be able to manifest this beautiful, universal dimension of, of the body of Christ. 